Every year in the Episcopal Church on the second Sunday of Easter, we read the Gospel about doubting Thomas. And its purpose is, after all of the joy and exhilaration of Easter, to confront the reality that from the jump, the issue of Jesus' resurrection and its meaning has always been controversial, controversial, and that people have remained skeptical in one form or another about it. And I mention this because I don't know whether it qualifies uh, in my own self as a hobby horse, but we're contending these days with a lot of skepticism with regard to religious faith and belief generally. It's uh, not new, but there is a particular edge to it that in some ways uh, is troubling, One of the le not the least of which is, is that many of the people who are on that hobby horse themselves don't realize that this is not new, and they act as though they're raising questions that have never been raised before. But I'm thinking particularly of some books that have been written in the last two or three years that not only uh, have doubts about the veracity of Christianity, or for that matter, any great faith tradition, but believe keenly that religion is a pernicious influence on human beings, and the sooner it, it goes away, the better off we will all be. No matter what it is that uh, faith tradition you subscribe to. And so I'm thinking, for example, of books by Sam Harris, The End of Faith, for example. Some of the books by Richard Dawkins on uh, evolution. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who has written a number of books where um, I think his last one was God is Not Great. So those are books that um, are written by articulate and thoughtful people, but we need to uh, say some things about it, and that's what I intend to do uh, today. Remember Episcopalians uh, as the source of their, for authority in their own faith and belief have three standards they use. One is the Bible, one is the tradition with a capital T, and the third one is our own reason and experience. And you should be able to bring to bear the full force and effect of your intellectual powers on the deep things of Christian faith and belief, and that those things will withstand that process and that scrutiny. And it is a hallmark of the Anglican tradition of the Episcopal Church that we have always held in high regard the fact that in our tradition you don't need to park your brains at the door when you come in. One of the things that uh, has come up uh, over time and one of the sort of flashpoints of what I'm talking about is the whole issue of science and religion, and it particularly has something to do in the area uh, or is an important thing with regard to the conversation about evolution and about creationism and things like that. In the 19th century, there was a wife of an Anglican bishop in England of a fairly large see who said, I certainly hope that the theory of evolution is not true. But if it turns out to be true, I hope that it has not become publicly known. 
So that's a particular way of approaching things, isn't it? Uh, I can think about my family past where there may have been some who would have preferred the idea, well, if that's true, just don't speak of it, right? Alan Jones, I quoted from him uh, on Easter, wrote a book a few years ago before he retired from Grace Cathedral called Reimagining Christianity, How to Reconnect Your Spirit Without Disconnecting Your Mind. And he had a section in the book where he talked about science and religion, and in particular about creationism and evolution. And he said this, the creationist wants to talk about meaning and gets it confused with science. The evolutionist wants to talk about science and can't help sneering at religion. Many biologists seem to think that the theory of evolution, revised or otherwise, denies the possibility of design and order that that points to the possibility of God. The creationists respond negatively and neither side understands the other. I have to confess that until recently I wasn't really aware of the reductionist assumptions of the evolutionist establishment. I'd always had a benign view of scientists, so I'm surprised to find myself thinking that creationists have a point, not a scientific one, but a theological one. Scientists, as scientists, have no business affirming or denying purpose in the universe. And people of faith err when they come to scientific conclusions based on creedal or biblical texts. My experience with scientists is that they are not so much arrogant as ignorant of how to play the game of theology. Some think it's a game so silly that it's not worth playing. Yet they cannot help but dabble in the meaning to which science points. You know, the most reasonable person in this debate was Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote a number of books. He was a very respected scientist. He was a paleontologist, you know, of the fossil record. He wrote a book about the Burgess Shale in British Columbia. He was an atheist. He wasn't a believer. And what he said in an interview, I heard him one time, he said, you know, the more I do this work, the more I study the fossil record, the more I think about evolution and what this information is giving up to me, the more I would say that there simply is no purpose to this. I can't see, based on my work, any purpose. It just is. But that's not my business. My business is to do the science and to say what it is that we're finding now. He's the one, for example, that came up with this idea of punctuated equilibrium where you'll go along for thousands of years and the life forms sort of just stay the same. And then all of a sudden, junk, you have this big spike in, in uh, how all these different uh, things come, come into being. And then, you know, and you're off to another period of stability. So he talks about this in his, in his books. But he's right, you know. He re recognizes that that's not really his job. 
And I, I really don't have uh, any right to make too many comments about quantum physics. I think that's the business of the quantum physicists with regard to what it is that they, that they do. So I think that's what Alan Jones is getting at, that an overweening skepticism can be difficult. So when we as Episcopalians say that you shouldn't leave your, your brains at the door, here are some questions that I don't intend to answer in this sermon, but we might just want to ask. Uh, my morals and ethics professor in seminary used to ask us this stuff all the time. Is there anything that we shouldn't know? Is there anything that you shouldn't know, that you don't need to know, would be a bad idea for you to know? Is there any knowledge that's forbidden? Do you believe that there's any? If you have the right to, if you have the ability to do something, should you do it? I don't mean uh, issues of moral behavior and conduct, although that's one of them, but suppose we, we mean this in terms of science and technology. If you can do this, should you do this? The answer, I think, that most people come to in our day and age is yes, yes. You know, we should. And sometimes that might be a question that we want to ask. On the other hand, when we speak about healthy skepticism, we see that in some way as providing us with the energy and the ability to see more clearly as we live and understand the processes at work, both in terms of our relational life with one another and internally in our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. About 15 years ago, there was a study that was done by the Wellstone Project in the Episcopal Church on the health of the clergy, which to some of you may seem like an oxymoron. <laughs> but one of the things that the, that the study delivered up was that the healthiest group of clergy were people who were realistic about the institutional church. And the healthiest group of clergy were realistic about their idealism. If there's anybody that should be idealistic, friends, it's Christian people. But all of us know and have met people whose idealism is crazy-making. So maybe it's a good idea to have a critical distance even from the things that you hold highest and most dearly in your life. And that's where the real challenges operate. And that's what gets us to the gospel today. Before I talk about Thomas, there's a very important section in the first part of this gospel that I read to you where Jesus appears to all of the apostles except Thomas. And he breathes on them. He gives them his spirit. And after he does that, he bestows on them the power of the keys. Whatsoever sins ye loose on earth are loosed in heaven. And whatsoever sins ye bind on earth are bound in heaven. Now elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus gives the power of the keys in one place to Peter. 
and in another place to all the disciples and all the apostles as well. I'm not too interested in the abstruse aspects of what is meant here about the binding and loosing of sins and what all that necessarily means. What I am interested in is that what the Savior did at that moment was to create in the apostles the ministry of reconciliation. And by extension, all Christian people share in this ministry of reconciliation in big and small ways. And one of the centerpieces of the practice of our faith, one of the tests of our spiritual progress and maturity, has something to do with how we practice reconciliation in big and small ways in our own lives. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. And learning to be the best kind of reconciler is a good thing. I'm not talking about peace at any price or some kind of way in which you sort of uh, lose your principles in order to have everybody getting along with one another. But how do we seek to bring opposites together in such a way as that we come to see one of the great mysteries that the gospel witness seems to give to us and other places in the Bible, and that is that things are not either or, they're both and. And where do we see the complementarities as we live in what may appear to be opposites? And so this is a biblical text about our call to the ministry of reconciliation and its importance, and the knowledge that the aid that we have to do this does not come from just merely our own disposition interiorly. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God, bestowed on us by the Savior. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. We then move to the part of the reading today that is the one that we all remember every second Sunday, and that's Thomas. Uh, if you read this in the original language, uh, Thomas's name, Didymus, uh, in Greek means twin. So that's why they put it in, in uh, parentheses. So when you read it, you say Thomas the twin. But that, it says Didymus in Greek. He's not going to believe it. Either way, here's another thing. You know, the resurrection appearances in the New Testament are different one from another. And it seems to be clear that the risen Christ in his appearance and in his action, is different. He's resurrected. It isn't just the resuscitation of a corpse. It's Jesus in his risen state. That's why Mary Magdalene could not recognize him until he spoke to her. And today we have an example where he comes into a room without, with the doors shut and is there. So Thomas wasn't there the first time, and now he is. He said, I'm not going to believe that Jesus is risen until I can put my hands in his wounds. So Jesus comes in, and he says to Thomas, you know, I'm here. Put your finger in my hand and your hand in my side, you know. And then he asks him, the, I think it's a very mild rebuke, to be frank, 
And it's a, but it's a good one. He said, do you believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have come to believe. He doesn't say who have not seen and believe. He said who have not seen and have come to believe. And what that means, of course, is the process of coming to the appropriation of the resurrection faith and the faith and belief that new life, transformation, growth, maturity in all aspects of your life is possible and that you see that as you are now willing to enter into the process of following Jesus on the way. And when that happens, of course, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. In fact, his affirmation of what he has seen is more is deeper and more absolute than the other disciples and the other apostles. At least we have no written text about their reaction in that sense. You know, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It is certainty. And most of us want certainty. I know I do. And I've also realized that it's possible to become sick or crazy uh, seeking certainty. It certainly is in human relationships. There are people who wish that they could absolutely nail down what other people are thinking and feeling and so forth, you know. This is also a text about a reality that is the hardest for human beings to accept, and that is you and I cannot will change in others. We cannot will change in others. It is not possible. And we often spend a lot of time and energy on trying to do it and always end up frustrated. But if you begin to develop the faith, which is the trust in the processes of God, even the progress that you can see in small ways as you live your life, the ability to be just a little bit less anxious, the ability to be a little bit more accepting, the ability to see that rather than try to will change in other people, you know that you can change yourself. And by virtue of doing that, you will have an effect on how other people relate to you. And therefore, you become an instrument of change. So this week, give thanks for the risen Savior. Give thanks for the opportunity to be a minister of reconciliation, which is part of our self-understanding as Christian people. Amen.